Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the second of a two-part episode about Christianity and progressive American politics. If you haven't yet, we recommend listening to part one first. Also, a quick note before we begin. This episode explores the history of the abortion debate. Although I'll be using the contemporary pro-choice, pro-life terminology, it's important to note that those terms have a history and embedded assumptions. In 1972, the abortion access activist Jimmy Kimmy wrote a memo emphasizing the importance of having an active, monosyllabic slogan to counter the growing right-to-life movement. She settled on the term pro-choice to correspond to pro-life. Many of the people and groups we discuss in this episode wouldn't have used these terms to describe themselves. On November 9th, 2016, the day after President Donald Trump's surprise election, a number of unconnected women simultaneously created Facebook events in protest. They all planned to march on Washington during Trump's inauguration. Thousands of women across the country joined, and the different groups soon united into a single organization in order to coordinate the march. By January, more than 500,000 women had RSVP'd to the Women's March, and more than 400 organizations were official partners, including Greenpeace, Oxfam, the NAACP, and multiple labor unions. Four days before the planned march, the journalist Emma Green wrote in The Atlantic about the surprising inclusion of this and other pro-life groups at the march, wondering whether it was a sign that the boundaries of feminism were shifting, making room for those with a moral opposition to abortion. Bob Bland, one of the event's co-chairs, told Green that, quote, we must not just talk about feminism as one issue, like access to reproductive care. On Twitter, progressive activists reacted to Green's story with fury and disgust. The writer Roxane Gay wrote, quote, intersectional feminism does not include a pro-life agenda. Feminist columnist Jessica Valenti wrote, quote, horrified the Women's March has partnered with an anti-choice org. Please reconsider. Inclusivity is not about bolstering those who harm us. Just a few hours after the Atlantic article's publication, the Women's March removed New Wave Feminists from its list of partners, calling it an error, and issued a statement that said the march's platform is firmly pro-choice. The day of the march, the president of New Wave Feminists, Destiny Herndon de la Rosa, was interviewed on CBS News about the ordeal. 
So they accepted our applications. We were partners for four days. Uh, once it came out that we were pro-life and kind of more people started finding out there was backlash. And unfortunately, they went ahead and removed us. Despite being denied official partnership, the New Wave feminists decided to march anyway. Aside from the abortion issue, we were in complete lock and step with almost everything that was brought up during the rally and all of the issues that we heard these women speaking about. So, uh, I mean, we are definitely glad that we still went. The exclusion of pro-life groups from a progressive coalition isn't surprising. In fact, Green wrote her piece precisely because it was so unusual that the Women's March initially appeared to be inclusive of pro-life groups. The vast majority of progressive groups consider equitable access to abortion non-negotiable. On the other hand, millions of religious Americans are single-issue voters on abortion, opposing it above all else. They consequently vote Republican, even when they might otherwise support progressive goals. As long as I've been alive, this divide has seemed permanent, an unchangeable feature of American politics. But the history of the abortion debate suggests that this division might not be as durable as it seems. At one point, the positions were roughly reversed. Southern Baptists supported abortion, while progressives opposed it. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. The complicated history of the abortion debate reveals how religion influences political beliefs, but also how politics can influence religious beliefs. And it suggests that there might be ways to overcome, or at least reduce, these divisions in the pursuit of shared values. In the early decades of the United States, abortion was legal any time before quickening, when the mother could first feel the baby's movements. This usually occurred at about four months of gestation and was thought to be the moment when the soul entered the developing baby's body. After quickening, abortion was usually punished as a misdemeanor at most, and women who sought abortion used various herbs and tinctures widely available in the community. In the 1800s, however, some American doctors began to argue that abortion should be more tightly restricted. Daniel K. Williams, the author of Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade, explains why in a 2016 interview on Bridgehead Radio, a Canadian radio show hosted by Jonathan Van Maren. They were not approaching this from a distinctly religious perspective. Instead, they were arguing that because medical science had shown that quickening, this moment when a woman first perceives uh, fetal movement when she's pregnant, is not a distinct stage of, of fetal development. Uh, that, that is, there's, there's nothing unique that happens to the fetus at that point. And so the common law tradition that had prohibited abortion after quickening and, and perhaps had allowed it before quickening, uh, they argued was, was really scientifically flawed. Uh, it did not match medical science. And so using what they knew about uh, embryonic development and about fetal development, they, they argued successfully in state legislatures that uh, abortion needed to be restricted in most cases. Without access to a safe abortion, many women were forced into more dangerous circumstances. Besides using herbs and drugs, women tried to self-induce abortion using household items, such as candles, glass rods, pen holders, curling irons, spoons, knives, or sticks. Many died in the attempt. In the 1930s, when the first uh, calls for abortion legalization, or at least liberalization of abortion laws uh, began to be made, uh, they were made by doctors who conceded that abortion was uh, probably killing. That is, it probably terminated the, the life of a, of a human being. And so they argued that it definitely was not a good thing, 
but that in many cases it would be the lesser of two evils because uh, so many women, in their view, were dying from illegal abortions. The law already allowed for abortions when a mother's life was in danger, and some doctors began to argue that the law could be expanded to protect more women's lives. They argued that doctors should be able to perform abortions when they thought it was necessary for a woman's mental health, or to prevent the birth of a deformed child, or even if the mother was simply too poor to adequately care for her child. As legal restrictions on abortions relaxed, a number of Catholic doctors resisted this more utilitarian framework. The pro-life movement developed, for the most part, in a, a context of political liberalism. Williams explains that the pro-life movement didn't originate with evangelical Republicans, but with progressive Catholic Democrats. Uh, the arguments were shaped by politically liberal Catholics, by Catholics who subscribed to the principles of the New Deal and, and the human rights liberalism of, of the 1960s. These early anti-abortion activists saw protecting the unborn as part of their religious mandate. The Catholic Church taught them to care for the unemployed, the elderly, the disabled, and children. Preventing abortion was a human rights issue, which gave them a common cause with civil rights activists and anti-war protesters. In the decades after World War II, the U.S. government's support for abortion seemed perilously close to Nazi eugenics policies. The U.S. itself had its own history of forced sterilizations, which were mainly imposed on poor women and women of color. Opposing abortion meant defending the children of the poor and children of color. In the 1960s, African Americans were the group most strongly opposed to abortion. Progressive pro-lifers believed the government should help mothers to support their babies, not make it easier to abort them. Many prominent progressive politicians, including Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy and civil rights leader Reverend Jesse Jackson, championed their cause. Republicans, on the other hand, were either ambivalent or supported abortion rights, as did the Southern Baptist Convention, which released a resolution in support of abortion in 1971. W.A. Criswell, the Southern Baptist Convention's former president and pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, stated, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. This alignment all began to change on January 22, 1973. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. A few months after the decision, the Democrats failed to endorse a proposed human life amendment to the Constitution, which would have overturned Roe v. Wade. Pro-lifers began to feel alienated from the party, and Republicans saw a chance to win this voting bloc over to their side. In 1976, the Republican Party added a pro-life plank to their platform to draw these voters' support. At the time, the pro-life movement was strongly Catholic and strongly liberal. Pro-life activists connected their anti-abortion position with their campaigns against poverty and the Vietnam War, each one an effort to promote human life. But by 1980, a new evangelical Protestant group had emerged within the pro-life movement, and they tended to be much more conservative. It is not a Baptist issue. Abortion is not a Roman Catholic issue. It is a moral issue. It is a theological issue. This is Pastor Jerry Falwell, the founder of the conservative activist organization Moral Majority. It is a human rights issue, an issue that concerns the human rights of unborn babies who, by the hundreds of thousands, are being murdered. 
Members of the moral majority were disappointed that President Jimmy Carter, elected in 1976, had failed to oppose abortion in spite of his own evangelical Christianity. They threw their full support behind the 1980 Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan, and they pressured ambivalent Republican politicians to denounce abortion. Eventually, the GOP saw these socially conservative evangelicals as a more natural ally than the progressive Catholic pro-lifers they had previously courted. The moral majority's agenda, support for traditional family values, opposition to same-sex marriage, and opposition to abortion, has continued to shape the identity of the Republican Party. The Republican Party was concerned with more than saving the lives of the unborn. Pro-life rhetoric was designed to mobilize voters on cultural grounds in order to elect politicians who would then pass unpopular pro-business economic policies. Here is noted linguist and political writer Noam Chomsky on KGNU Community Radio in Boulder, Colorado in 2018. If you go back to the 1960s, the Republican Party was strongly pro-choice. That included the leadership. Reagan, Ford, H.W. Uh, Bush, and the same with Republican voters. In 1972, two-thirds of Republicans believed that abortion is a private matter. Uh, the government should have no involvement. Well, Nixon and his cohorts realized that, and along with their famous Southern strategy, uh, they could attract the Catholic vote, which had usually been Democratic, uh, simply by adopting a strong anti-abortion plan. A couple of years later, evangelicals uh, began to be organized for political action. But as the historian Randall Balmer has shown, it was segregation, not abortion, that really motivated the religious right. In 1976, the evangelical Bob Jones University had its tax-exempt status revoked for refusing to admit black students. Many evangelicals were infuriated. Uh, the Republican operative, uh, Paul Weirich, uh, he recognized an opportunity among the demands of the uh, newly organized evangelicals was demands for segregated schools. The virus realized that you can't call for that, but he had another proposal, namely the Republican Party should pretend to oppose abort abortion. And if it did, it could pick up the evangelical vote. That's now a core part of Trump's voting base. And the leadership uh, accordingly shifted to passionate pro-life advocates. Reagan, Ford, all the rest. Uh, that included those who were sometimes believed uh, to have uh, some character and honesty, like uh, George Bush I. Well, meanwhile, of course, the actual Republican constituency remains as it has been. A great wealth, over power, even more brazenly so under Trump. The shifting dynamics of the abortion debate represent how political goals can influence or even entirely reverse religious beliefs. Republican Party leaders and activists shaped evangelical views on abortion in order to pass business-friendly and pro-segregation legislation. Politics shaped religious beliefs, and then religious beliefs shaped politics. The strong alliance between the Republican Party and the pro-life coalition is one reason why many Christians feel they cannot support Democratic politicians even though they may otherwise support progressive causes. 
millions of people became single-issue voters on abortion. To vote for a progressive candidate would be to betray this one most sacred cause of all. For its part, the Democratic Party has long struggled with whether and how to attract otherwise progressive pro-life voters without alienating its pro-choice base. Washington Post columnist Elizabeth Brunig explains. Some Democrats want the party to support pro-life candidates and, and give them their full support, especially in red areas, um, in hopes of, of winning those districts and building a stronger party. And some feel like, um, you know, that's really giving too much ground to a segment of the party that they don't want to see thrive um, going forward. And, and I don't see that getting settled anytime soon. That's just probably going to remain one of those highly contentious things. This is not only a question of being for or against abortion access. The growing religious diversity in the Democratic coalition and the growing number of agnostics and atheists in the party is causing a new rift. I think that there's been a really sharp polarization um, between uh, secular people and religious people on the left that comes from the rise of the religiously unaffiliated, that um, among millennials or among the under 30s, you're talking about nearly 40%, 40% who are religiously unaffiliated. This is E.J. Dion, a columnist at The Washington Post. That's a remarkable number. We've never seen a number like that in any cohort of young people um, since we've been polling on these things. And so what you've created in the Progressive Coalition is a very complicated coalition management problem uh, because the Progressive Coalition, in a way, includes the most religious people in the country and the least religious people in the country, the most religious people being, by most of the polling measures, African-Americans. Then lay on top of that, the opposition of evangelical Christians to gay marriage. And you have the makings of a hostility that is driven by a reaction to someone else's hostility. And that's always a, a recipe for your know, really radical sorts of discord. According to the Pew Research Center data, 72% of white Republicans believe in the God of the Bible. Only 32% of white Democrats share that belief. And half of liberals say that religion's impact on society is more harmful than helpful. Our political divide, in some ways, is driven by a religious divide. This has challenging implications for Christians on the left. Evangelical Christians' overwhelming support for Donald Trump has made it harder for progressive Christians to assert their identity in the public sphere. Uh, in the last week, I've talked to two friends um, who had crosses, used to wear crosses, had pretty crosses that they liked. And... They feel they are still Christian. They don't wear them anymore, and they don't wear them because they don't want to be associated with um, a religious right that they see as associated with a kind of hatred or a very particular kind of politics, at least. Um, this has created, I think, a far more difficult circumstance for religious progressives than they have confronted in quite some time. But according to Liz Brunig, these difficult circumstances have inspired some progressive Christians to assert their faith more boldly. There have been amazing responses um, to the kind of growth of white nationalism, or at least the, the resurgence of white nationalism in the media um, when it comes to clergy. Um, there have been uh, activist movements in different churches across the country to shelter uh, immigrants who might otherwise be deported. Um, I think that's a, that's a good sign for the Christian left. In my heart... I'm troubled, and I'm worried by the way faith is cynically used by some 
to serve hate, fear, racism, and greed. This is William Barber, a North Carolina Baptist preacher and the founder of the Progressive Christian Moral Mondays movement. This audio is from a speech he gave at the Democratic National Convention in 2016. We need to heed the voice of the scriptures. The prophet Isaiah cries out, what I'm interested in seeing you doing, says the Lord as a nation is, pay people what they deserve. Share your food with the hungry. Jesus, a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, called us, called us to preach good news to the poor, the broken, and the bruised, and all those who were made to feel unaccepted. In spite of new leaders like William Barber, the public influence of progressive Christianity is unlikely to ever regain its once prominent position. Progressive congregations have declined or closed, and movements like Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter are decidedly not Christian in orientation. As a result, Harvard Divinity School professor Dan McCannon notes that many progressive Christian churches are choosing to support secular progressive movements through allyship and support, not direct leadership. For a mix of good and bad reasons, a lot of the young people with the greatest activist energies are alienated from institutional churches. And if church leaders try to take center stage in the movements of those young people, have created those young people are going to walk away. So that is simply not an option. Um, but to the extent that the churches play a good allied role, they have a lot to offer because they have institutional strength that these new movements don't have. The story of Christian progressivism reveals just how entwined politics and religion are. Abolition, labor rights, racial justice, all of these struggles had to be carried out in the political arena, but they were motivated by religious values. Through their struggles, Christian progressives achieved their goals in the 19th and 20th centuries. They helped secure the abolition of slavery, the empowerment of women, the expansion of education, and the protection of children's and workers' rights. Today, their values continue to resonate widely, in particular solidarity with the suffering and care for the oppressed. Secular progressives are still pursuing the central Christian goals of social justice and equality, even if they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. E.J. Dion hopes that these shared values can help to build bridges between secular and religious voters. I'm hoping that progressives can find their way again toward the idea that there are goals that they are seeking and that there, in many, many, many of these goals, uh, the witness of religious people is vitally important to their achievement. These common goals can be found even in the most divisive issue of all. Abortion has forced many Christians and progressives apart, but it also provides a roadmap for how they could come back together. In his Atlantic article, Michael Gerson explores the wing of the pro-life movement that the GOP decided not to follow, Catholic social teaching. This teaching is founded on a comprehensive commitment to solidarity and priority support for society's most vulnerable members. Gerson emphasizes that this solidarity cuts across the traditional party lines, Quote, if you want to call yourself pro-life on abortion, then you have to oppose the dehumanization of migrants. If you want to be regarded as pro-family, then you have to support access to health care, and vice versa. Gerson's article suggests a new way to define pro-life, and many progressives are using that definition. 
The Whole Life Democrats group, for example, advocates, quote, policies that responsibly protect and advance the interest of mothers and their children, both before and after birth. Similarly, some Christians see Christ's call to love and justice as a call not only to oppose abortion, but also to provide material assistance to new mothers, and a call to oppose the death penalty, and to welcome refugees fleeing violence abroad. By more broadly defining what it means to protect human life, pro-life Democrats and progressive Christians find common ground. It is what they are for rather than what they are against that unites them. We could all learn from this lesson. The surest signs for a way forward are often behind us. History can remind us of old bridges of solidarity and friendship and encourage us to repair those that have crumbled or been deliberately destroyed. The division between Christian values and progressive causes was partly manufactured for political purposes, and we don't have to go back very far to find the moment when they split. We don't need to let that artificial divide get in the way of what both sides rightly value, ever-expanding empathy and care, especially for the poor and powerless. No one wants to sacrifice their dearest principle. No one wants to betray who they are, but you don't have to. American political rhetoric today often says that simply reaching out to the other side is an act of treachery. But history can teach us to know better. When united, progressive Christianity helped to secure some of our country's proudest moments. Today, progressives and Christians still have many goals in common, and they can best reach these goals, maybe only reach these goals, if they work together. This episode was produced by Maria Devlin-McNair, Mike Berkey, and Bridget Powers. This concludes Season 2 of Ministry of Ideas. For updates on Season 3, follow us on Twitter, at Ministry of Ideas. If you're interested in topics like the ones we cover here at Ministry of Ideas, please check out Making Change, Harvard Divinity School's four-day seminar on how to apply insights drawn from religious traditions to create positive change in organizations, It begins June 10th at Harvard Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. To learn more, go to hds.harvard.edu and search for Making Change. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.